Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're going to have a unique discussion about palliative care. A lot of folks don't understand this term and might think that we're talking about hospice care, which may be a component of taking care of people at the end of life. But we're going to talk a little bit today about the difference between that and palliative care and why this is an important concept and why this is something that all of us may need at some point, because the idea is trying to stay comfortable and keep ourselves feeling as good as possible while we undergo medical treatment. So I'm lucky to be joined in the off, in the studio today by Dr. Daniel Fishberg. He is the medical director of the Pain and Palliative Care Department at Queen's Medical Center. And Beth Freitas, she's also working there as an advanced practice nurse practitioner at the Pain and Palliative Care Center. And we're going to talk today a little bit about what is this concept of palliative care? Why do we need it? And why is it so important that we take a look at this with an open mind as this could be the key to helping people really able to feel their best while they navigate a very complex medical system if they have serious illnesses. So thank you both for joining me today on The Body Show. Thank Thank you, you. Kathy. Pleasure to be here. Now, just as I was coming here today, I was having a discussion with an elderly patient's son who was quite upset that someone in the hospital had said palliative care. And he said, you're giving up on my mom. And I said, oh, no, no, not at all. This is something we offer to help people while they're dealing with their illness. And he was a very smart man, surprised to hear about this. What is the concept of palliative care? And when you get called in to consult with with patients and family members, how do you describe what you do? Yeah, well, it's it's such a common uh, experience, Kathy. What you just described um, that that people really just don't understand it. But but palliative care, in its simplest form, it's it's specialized medical care that focuses on best possible quality of life for people with a serious illness. And you know, we don't we think we know that most people want to live as long as they can and as well as they can. So, so we're specialists, doctors, nurses, social workers, and others that work with somebody's other doctors, other parts of the medical team to help with that, that quality of life piece. How does palliative care differ from hospice? Beth? So it, hospice is actually included in, in palliative care, but palliative care, the real benefit about that is that it's very much upstream from hospice. So anybody at the time of diagnosis um, can join a palliative care service and be cared for not just whatever medical treatments are going on, but definitely focusing also on their symptoms. And their symptoms are not just physical symptoms, but emotional, spiritual. So it's really looking at the whole person. This is very similar to hospice, but like I said, it's really upstream. The other really great thing about palliative care is that it's just not the person or the patient that's going through the illness. It's really treating and encompassing their whole family and whatever that family is to them. Um, it's, it's really their friends, holistic. their loved ones, whoever Correct. is involved in their, in their team. Yeah. You know, I spoke to another individual earlier today who had been diagnosed with a serious immune problem, ulcerative colitis. It's a bowel issue. And this was really throwing them just from their, their medical view of being a healthy, happy 50-some-year-old woman to suddenly getting a major medical diagnosis. And she was struggling because she was treating the primary illness, but she also had the whole emotional concept of 
this has changed my worldview, and I'm afraid of food now, and food was my joy, and what do I do? And no one had really reached out to her and kind of talked to her about the emotional effect of this. And I find that often in medicine, maybe we're too focused on treat the disease, treat the disease, and people will figure out some other way to emotionally handle their disease. Is this one of the situations where palliative care might help somebody to understand their illness and deal with some of the physical symptoms that go along with it? No, absolutely, Kathy. I mean, because coping, you know, is sort of the general term we're talking about. When someone is experiencing distress and suffering, um, how do we cope? Some of that might be helping them with medicines, help, sometimes helping with physical therapy to help uh, accommodate. But a huge part of this is, is the psychological, the emotional piece of how do we help the person and, and, as Beth pointed out, the whole family cope with this situation, which we hope might be a temporary situation and that health is going to improve in the future. And I think Beth put it very well. You know, Hospice is a type of palliative care for people near the end of life generally in the last six months of life. And palliative care can be provided at any time when people are still pursuing a cure. And so really a fraction of the people that we see are, are at the end of life. The vast majority are, are actively pursuing either cure or life prolongation. So this could potentially be someone who's undergoing chemotherapy for their illness and want to have palliative care on their team to help them deal with some of the symptoms of maybe some of the treatments that, that can feel fairly toxic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we found the, the literature supports that palliative care medicine and certain cancer diagnosis prolongs life. And we're not, um, some people say, as toxic as other things that can be your treatments. You know, we're a, a good support. We're a safety net. That's really the key is that it's a team approach. You know, a lot of medicine used to be just in silos, one person doing one thing to treat one problem. And now we're realizing that this comprehensive approach, taking a look at the whole person, not just their medical illness, whether it be a cancer, but how does this affect their ability to function and get up and take care of their family or to acquire food or to feel supported emotionally and spiritually. It really is this comprehensive concept of how can we help you? So... You work in the hospital setting. What are the most common sorts of medical conditions for which you find your team is consulted? Well, well, I would say, you know, a cancer diagnosis is probably the most common. But certainly we see people with um, other issues such as heart disease, lung problems, people who have, you know, we're the trauma center at Queen's. So people who have been very, very healthy and then, you know, some tragedy befell them in an accident or something, and now they're fighting hard to recover from that. We might be helping them deal with the emotional distress, the physical pain related to that, Um, other situations. Um, sometimes someone might be uh, developing a, a more of a neurodegenerative problem, um, like a dementia or something like that, um, and that's another area that we work with. Well, and if somebody has loved ones that are in the hospital or even in the clinic and find a need to have this additional assistance provided, they can always reach out and become part of this team. I mean, sometimes the individual themselves may say, yes, I agree, I think I need palliative care. It may be their loved ones who step in and say, I think this would be appropriate for you. Have you seen that happen as well, Beth? Yeah, I think it's also, it's very uh, common that loved ones are identifying that, you know, their loved one is divided into parts, as you were saying, multiple physicians, you know, multiple specialists. We're a really good source of linking everybody together, communicating. Um, That's what we you know, spend primary our time with is communicating and making sure everybody's on the same page. Everybody has all the shared information because usually loved ones, your loved one is really sick. 
um, if they're especially if they're in the hospital, and holding all that information and and how to keep them whole is really important. So patients can ask for it. Um, loved ones can ask for it. And we have a, a broader sense of more support in the community also for even when people are out of the hospital. So that part is growing, and we're really excited about that. And that was my next question. Does it also, once you leave the hospital, does that mean you can't be part of palliative care? Yeah, so, so it's definitely a, an exciting growing area, as Beth pointed out. I'd say, you know, Hawaii is, I think, a little bit ahead of the game in terms of um, other other states. Um, in terms of our larger hospitals here, our midsize and large hospitals really all have inpatient palliative care. Smaller hospitals, it's still not quite the norm here or any community. But um, growing access in the community is something that's really developing here, I think, in ways well ahead of the mainland. What are we doing? Well, well, for example— Because I want to do it, and I'm not doing it, <laughs> yeah. so what it, am I not it, doing? It, it's still not as broad as we would like it to be. Well, for example, you know, we, we see outpatients in, our, in the cancer center. So as, as I said, the, the leading diagnosis we make, might get consulted for is people with cancer. We can definitely follow those people once they return home. Um, but there are actually some home-based programs now. Um, different insurers have very exciting programs. Um, as, as we mentioned before, hospice is— a type of palliative care, but they do have this expertise in palliative care. And so um, a a lot of smart people have tapped into that and so added a benefit that's a palliative care benefit in the community, and it's staffed by hospice staff, but it is not hospice. It's for people who are still pursuing life prolongation and and even cure, um, but they can have this 24-7 kind of support network available to them at home. It honestly sounds like even without a major medical diagnosis, we would all do great if we had access to this level of support. But those who have serious illnesses certainly would be the ones who would benefit the most. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about how to tap into those resources and who are the team members and what are some of the treatments that people often need to hear more about. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Daniel Fishberg and Nurse Beth Freitas, and they're both part of the pain and palliative care team at Queen's Medical Center. And we're talking today about what is palliative care and what does it mean and how do you access it? So before the break, we were talking about how this is an opportunity for people with serious medical illnesses, whether it be cancer, lung problems like emphysema, whether it be heart problems like serious problems with heart disease, or even neurodegenerative problems, whether it be Parkinson's or whether it be Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. These are serious medical problems, and they often lead to people having major issues with trying to deal with the diagnosis and also deal with some of the treatments, which sometimes can make people feel really just sick and and not very well. So we've talked a little bit about how to access this system in the hospital. Could anybody who is hospitalized, certainly at Queens Medical Center, at one of the medical centers that has a palliative care team. If family members were interested, they could probably just inquire with the nursing staff, I would imagine, and or the physicians or nurses taking care of the individual. And Yes, that's, and that's not an uncommon experience at all. Of course, we always like to keep the supervising doctor in charge, so we like to get that message you know, towards the doctor, get them to actually put in the order. So then we're happy to see somebody. But we don't care who comes up with the idea as long as somebody you know, thought we could be of some service. 
And if you see somebody and find out it's not a good fit, I would imagine you'd probably say, hey, we'd love to help you. For whatever reason, we may you may not need us. We're yeah. available. Yeah, or, or we might think that there's a resource that's a better fit. You know, we have a fantastic geriatrics team at uh, at Queens, and and sometimes the issues might be much more related to a geriatric specialist, and and so we work very closely with them trying to figure out who can serve somebody best. And if this is an outpatient situation or somebody gets discharged, you mentioned that some of the hospice organizations now actually have a palliative care team. So certain of the hospice programs will say, you know, if you still are pursuing chemotherapy or cardiac medications or whatever the situation may be, you can also still take advantage of some of these services and be part of our palliative care team. And then if the time comes when it's appropriate to transition to hospice, you know our team already. Right. And and sometimes some hospice organizations divide their teams. So they have some that are more palliative focused and some that are more hospice focused. Some of them merge them and the same provider may be caring for you um, either way. But it definitely is something to inquire about. Um, it's something that, um, like I said before, is really an added benefit um, resource. And usually those teams are comprised of uh, physicians, social workers, um, and they'll add physical therapy at times and those types of things. But just a social worker to help you navigate the paperwork um, is a great resource um, to to have on your team. And, you know, your physician to help you with your symptom management, you know, your nurse to talk about, you know, explain the practical aspects. Um, and then chaplain resources are also included. So it really is a whole holistic, comprehensive way to approach a serious illness and to support a family. You sold me at someone to do the paperwork. (laughs) Now, some insurers also cover for this. I know UHA covers for this. I know HMSA has some coverage for this as well. And some of the other major insurers have said, we believe in this approach and we want to be out there and provide coverage for people who might be in this situation because we agree with the holistic approach to dealing with all of these concerns. Now, one of the things that might happen, and the palliative care team at Queens Medical Center is also the pain team. So one of the things that people are afraid of when they're undergoing treatments for major illnesses, even if it's curative, is people are afraid of pain and people are afraid of nausea. I find that patients will tell me those are the two biggest symptoms Mm -hmm. they're most afraid of. Mm -hmm. What are the approaches that a palliative care team can add, or maybe because you are also the pain team, can add, and what are some of the fears people have that we can alleviate? Yeah, well, we'll start with, you're absolutely right. Those are two very burdensome symptoms. Um, with uh, with pain, um, we really are, the focus now is on what we call a multimodal approach, um, thinking of all different kinds of, um, a combination of medications and, and other approaches um, can really uh, give us much better results, better relief with fewer side effects. You know, I, I think probably most of your listeners are very aware that we're dealing with an issue with, with opioids, um, opioid pain medications that perhaps were prescribed a little little more liberally in the past um, and, and led to some, some issues. We, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that those medications are bad, but we maybe can learn and be a little smarter and use lower doses for shorter periods of time. Um, and there are some situations where we might not use opioid pain medicines at all anymore and just use non-opioid medicines, non-opioid treatments. So some of those treatments can be medications. Some of them can even be hands-on treatments. Yeah, so we um, have great resources with massage therapists, um, heat, cold, you know, Reiki therapy, 
Um, going on to the treatment of nausea, we do a lot of aromatherapies also in addition to medicines. Um, so really looking at people holistically and not um, just focusing on, you know, giving them a medicine or a pill that w- then we worry about, you know, the side effects of those things and, you know, how they may interact with other things that they're taking and, and treatment. And a lot of patients tell us, you know, they have a pill burden. They don't really like taking all these medicines. Um, and so we try to really focus on on them holistically and looking at different options. Well, and I think they also want to be aware and alert mm-hmm. In sometimes medications, some of the opioid medicines might make you feel sleepy or tired or out of it or even make you nauseous or constipated or cause other symptoms. So when we think about trying to tailor the treatment to the person's symptoms, it may be that they're secure in knowing there's treatment for their symptoms, but it doesn't always have to be what you hear about as far as opioids or pain medicines Mm -hmm. that could be problematic, but it may be those pain medicines. I think, you know, the pendulum has swung and hopefully not too far in the other direction where people are so scared to prescribe a pain pill that people are screaming in pain. I don't see that happening in hospitals. I know that most physicians really are curtailing their approach to using medicines in situations where they aren't necessary, but nobody's really restricting them for people who need it. Right. Um, you're right. This is a pendulum that swings back and forth, and uh, we we know that you know uh, doctors will always learn to do things better in, in the future. So whatever we're doing now, people will look back in five years and 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 know better. Um, but I th- I think the balance seems a little more sensible right now. Um, nobody's suggesting that you have major major surgery without you know an opioids. But what we found, for example, is the number of pills that a doctor might give. Say you have a a knee replacement. The number of pills that you might be given when you leave the hospital, some doctors give a very small amount, some doctors give a very large amount, and, and, and they're we probably should standardize should, that, it should yeah. be a little more standardized. And so there's a lot of movement towards that. And then we've also found that regardless of the, the number the doctor gives, a lot of patients use a very small number of them and for a much shorter period of time. So what do people do with all those extra medicines? Unfortunately, you know, they might leave them around in the medicine cabinet or something like that. So that's part of the problem. Not so much that the patient was using too much of the medicine, but you've got a lot of these potentially dangerous medicines sitting out there waiting for somebody to perhaps use them in an incorrect way. And don't flush them because I don't really want them to be in the water system. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I just, I don't. And I'm sure a lot of other people don't as well. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the benefits of participating in a pain and palliative care program and what these things can offer you as a patient or as a loved one of someone who's dealing with a major illness. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University, Inter-Island Solar Supply, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm here with Dr. Daniel Fishberg, Medical Director of the Pain and Palliative Care Program at Queens Medical Center, and Nurse Beth Freitas, and she's also an integral member of the team. We talked a little bit about the members of the team. You mentioned a social worker. There may be a chaplain. There may be other nurses. Physician is involved. And these are folks who would be consulted to assist with the care in someone who's in the hospital setting, maybe sometimes just to help coordinate the care, but also to provide some of these additional resources and services. 
And we've also talked a little bit about pain management and how that may move beyond just opioids in this current setting in response to some of the crisis, but also with the idea that we're learning about different types of medications that have benefits and treatment of pain. What are some of the other alternative medicines? We've talked about some of the physical treatments, the Reiki, the massage, you know, chiropractic, acupuncture, some of these other types of additional complementary care that can also provide pain relief, nausea relief. There's other medications that are safe. There are some that people may not even realize are out there that could help them. What are those medications like, and how are we implementing those? So, for example, in the hospital and and when someone's having surgery, yes, opioids might be a a part of that, but certainly there are also anti-inflammatory medicines that can reduce some of the the chemicals that are released that cause pain. Um, That can be a very important uh, non-opioid type of medicine that's used. Also, we use um, medicines that can adjust um, how, how excitable the nerves get after an operation, um, so something that can sort of calm the nerves so they don't get overexcited, and um, that, if that happens, um, potentially that could lead to someone having chronic pain after an operation. So, so sort of modulating, quieting the nerves before surgery is something that's done. And I, and I don't mean the, you know, the the, the mental nerves. I, I just mean the peripheral nerves. And then, of course, um, a lot of times uh, the anesthesiologist uh, or the surgeon might do an injection of a, med- a local anesthetic, similar to what the patient might experience when they go to the dentist and they get some Novocaine or something to numb them up. That could be done if you're having some surgery on a, on a joint, for example, um, and that can give you wonderful pain relief while that is there, and you don't need any opioid when you have that nerve block on. So nerve blocks, or you mentioned some of those other medications that might be anti-inflammatories, things like the Motrin, Advil, Ibuprofen in prescription doses. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned some of the nerve pills. Some common names people might be familiar with are gabapentin or Lyrica. Cymbalta is another medicine that is often used for chronic pain and those sorts of symptoms because it works. I mean, bottom line is if it helps people and it's safe and it's something that can help them to feel better. These are the types of things that we should do. Now, you mentioned that future goals would be to see more outpatient palliative care and pain care teams. Where do you see the system? Because, you know, I look five years ago or maybe 10 years ago, and hospice was one thing and treatment was another, and we've developed this concept of the palliative care team. Where do you see it going in the next few years? Well, I, I think it, it sort of has to build on what we've done already, this this blending that, you know, in, in our society, we really shouldn't have to choose between living longer and feeling better, that generally those those things go together. And if, and if we're giving you treatments that help you feel better, you're usually going to live longer and just do better. Similarly, treatments that are, that are helping to extend your life usually help you feel better at the same time. Um, so really blending them like that. And there's a lot of thought going on about how we pay for medical services and things like that. We, we hope that we're, some of the changes we're making are going to lead to better quality care, uh, s- getting better results, more, more patient, family-centered, outcome-oriented results. But the proof is in the pudding, and, and we just hope that um, as these new forms of paying for medical care get developed, that they do focus on this, include a focus on this blended kind of care. Well, and, you know, I wonder, how is medicine going to be paid for in the next 10 years? You never know. I mean, there's all these different forces on how we can look at how to provide care for folks. And 
a lot of other countries have different systems. And I don't know if anybody's figured out the perfect system, but certainly there are ones that might provide more access than what we have now. And there are some ways that we could look at this from this holistic perspective. You know, the idea is inclusive. Maybe instead of doing it all one way or another way, it's going to look at it from a multifaceted approach and say, here are some of the values that we put on different aspects of care, and we're going to find ways to reimburse for it collectively. And, and, you know, some of the insurers that you mentioned before, you know, have sort of figured out that the most cost-effective way to take care of someone is by keeping them feeling as good and healthy as they possibly can be. So they invest in these programs because they've been shown to keep people out of the hospital feeling good, catch a problem when it, it's a small problem and put out the fire before it becomes something serious that the patient has to then go to the emergency room for. Something that might be easily controlled at home if they had more resources or even just more knowledge or someone to call. So, you know, I'm curious, Beth, in your experience in what you've been able to do in the hospital, what are some of the responses that you've received from people who who have been signed up for and or taken advantage of palliative care services? And have you ever seen somebody who was really resistant to it and then once they realized what it was, found out how it helped them? Yeah, it's quite common that we do that. And I think the the, the thing that we don't want to hear the most, but we do get back from our patients because we do survey our patients and our families about what the quality of cares we're giving is like, we wish we heard about you sooner. We wish we had access to you sooner. And I think that that's the whole thing about healthcare is I would really like to promote and see that we do have patients and their families taking more of an active role. I mean, I think we're really shifting to, you know, hopefully being part of the whole team and feeling like it's not the doctors and nurses, you know, dividing against what the patients and family wants, but really opening up that communication. So I'd like to even backpedal the whole palliative care piece about having conversations about what what your wishes are, what your hopes are, what your dreams are, what kind of future you want to have, and making sure your family knows about those things that are important to you too, um, because that's a big part of palliative care. What's important to you? What's your quality of life? That's such an important thing. The key is discuss your, your well, what now in my office is termed advanced directives, but really it's not just about what you want done if your heart stops or your breathing stops. It's what do you define as your quality of life and what are things that are important to you. And if you can't do something and you'll never be able to do that, whether it be, you know, enjoy time in your garden or whatever it might be, how do you figure out what your value system says about how you should handle that. That's a really good point. Do you often get called in to help people who are not sure about their wishes and be asked to help clarify that? Yeah, absolutely, Kathy. And before we got started, we were just chatting about some of the the common opening questions we have. And I think some of the key questions... we want want to ask somebody is, you know, what's most important to you at this time in your life? What are you most hoping for? What are you most worried about? Because those are the things that we want to know so the rest of the medical team can know that too. So we can steer your medical care towards the things you're hoping for and away from the things you're most worried about. And that might need to be done before you even get the major illness. I think a major illness is something that sort of highlights to people you want to know what you want in the future. But the idea is that if you have definitive wishes, if you have certain things that are so important to you, talk about it with your loved ones. Yeah. So this area of advanced care planning, absolutely. We recommend everybody have these conversations. Um, 
real technically as soon as you're 18 years old, you know, you can think about who would be your spokesperson, who would speak for you if you were too sick to speak for yourself, and then the nature of some of those questions about, you know, what what's most important to you in your life. When someone gets a diagnosis of a serious illness, things change, and, and people might want to reevaluate what their priorities are and what's most important to them. And, and just, just as we age, our priorities change. They do. I remember being younger thinking, I never want to be resuscitated. Now I'm like, well, yes, I do. I want to live long enough to spend all this money I've saved for retirement and not just leave it to my husband and everybody else. I mean, you know, so there's it does change. And then if you get another illness, things may alter as well. So if people haven't had this discussion, they should at least think about it. And if they do have a major diagnosis or a loved one who does, consider palliative care. It's it's still treating your primary illness, but adding this other holistic concept of of complementing your, your current illness treatment with this additional wrapping around of services that might really be helpful in yeah. the long run. Well, I want to thank both of you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. We will have to have you back again because there's a whole host of questions I know that folks may have about how to access services and what else they can do to keep living longer and feeling healthy as long as possible. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk more on The Body Show. See you then. (laughs) 